I have to make a new rule. No mentioning barbecue in the BNN before I preach. Amen? <laughs> It'll be good. Come out to that and support our youth group. Um, how many have ever had somebody come to you and say, I, I don't know how to say this. It's really hard for me, but I need to share something with you. And you're just like, your heart sinks. You're like, okay, what's going to happen next? And then they said, I'm going through a time of discouragement. And you went, oh, wow, whew. It's okay. I thought you were going to tell me you were having an affair or, you know, you had cancer or something. Ever been there? So you pat them on the back and say, buck up, it'll be okay. You know, pull yourself up, it's going to be all right, I'll pray for you, right? Not a big deal. But in fact, discouragement is a big deal. In fact, discouragement is a really big deal. Courage, by definition, means that you're able to face fear, you're able to walk through pain, you're able to go through difficulties and overcome obstacles. That's what courage is. It is a mentality. It is an attitude in the face of difficulty. And this is a Latin that means to take out of or to remove. And so discouragement means that you've removed someone's ability to face difficulty. Somebody's ability to overcome obstacles, someone's ability to face pain or fear, and so they're not going to be able to move forward with work and their life and their families and the things that God has called them to do. Discouragement is a really big deal because discouragement prevents progress. It hinders growth, and it sucks the strength out of us. It makes us passive. You can think of discouragement in a couple of ways, or a couple of images people often use. Sometimes they use the, the idea of being deflated. If you can imagine a balloon with a hole in it, and it deflates, nobody wants to use that. It's not good for a party. It's not good for your kids to play with. It's not good to fulfill its purpose. Sometimes we think about discouragement as a wet blanket, because a wet blanket isn't able to fulfill its purpose, is it? You think it's going to provide warmth, but you put it on and it actually weighs you down and makes you cold. And that's what discouragement does. It weighs you down. It doesn't allow you to fulfill your purpose. Sometimes it's thought of as a heavy weight that you have to try to push up a hill. And you're not able to get it up over the hill and to feel like that weight has been lifted. Discouragement is a huge problem. People and churches are hindered in their lives by discouragement. They become slow, they become passive, they become reactive instead of proactive, they become afraid. You're not smart enough to teach others about God. People won't want to be around you if you talk about God too much. Nobody cares about the passion God's put in your heart. Nobody cares about what you're working on. Nobody cares about what you're, what you're serving in. And these sorts of thoughts and feelings begin to infiltrate our minds and creep in. And you can see this this problem throughout the history of God's people. Think of one of the iconic moments in the Bible, the fight between David and Goliath. Do you know the story? You're familiar with the story of David and Goliath? Israel's enemies, uh, the Philistines, uh, God's people, Israel, they had these enemies who were constantly raiding them, provoking them, robbing from them, and now the Philistines had gathered their troops for battle, and King Saul got his army ready and got the army of Israel to go out and to meet them, but when they got there, they were finally ready to do something about this enemy who'd been harassing them for years, but when they arrived on the battlefield, out came the giant Goliath who began to challenge them and to defy them. He was massive, something like nine and a half feet tall. He was defying Israel, calling for them to send out a champion, a representative to come and fight on behalf of Israel. And 1 Samuel 17, 11 says that when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly 
afraid. The courage was removed from them. They'd gone out to the battlefield, but now the courage had been sucked out of them. The courage was drained. They came ready for battle, pumped up because their king, King Saul, had won some recent victories, but then they were deflated like a balloon. Have you ever felt deflated like that? I know I have. I think if we're honest, all of us have, and some people are maybe more prone to discouragement than others, but I think we've all felt deflated. Maybe this morning you feel discouraged right now. Sometimes we believe that the past determines our future, and so we feel defeated before we even try. Sometimes our spiritual enemy, the devil, is at work to bring discouragement through our fears, through our past, through the words of other people, through anxiety, through comparisons, and through things like that. And this happens to churches as well, to whole churches The leadership gets discouraged and people are then discouraged. There seems to be little movement, seems to be little momentum. And so we're convinced that we can't move. Not just that we aren't, but that we can't move. We talk about each other and discourage one another rather than building one another up. Division, bitterness, rivalries can occur that deflate or discourage us from pursuing the purposes that God put us here to pursue. Last week we saw that God spoke to his people through the prophet Haggai. He confronted his people's misplaced priorities. They were, he exposed their excuses as they were building their own houses and decorating them, but saying it's not time to build God's house. We can't, we can't do that. And they responded. They repented and, and God assured them that he was with them. He stirred up their spirits and they got to work. But after about seven weeks, They got discouraged already. It happened pretty quickly. Haggai spoke to them. They started the work three weeks later, and a month or less after that, they're already feeling discouraged. Something happened along the way that caused the hearts of God's people to deflate, whether it was delays in the building progress or unmet expectations or comparisons with the past. They were discouraged, and it was jeopardizing their obedience to build God's house. Haggai 2, 1 to 3 says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant, or this group that returned from exile in Persia. Speak to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is left among you who saw this house, the temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? As I said, this was about seven weeks after Haggai first addressed their disobedience. The date would have been on the last day of a week-long festival, a feast called the Feast of Booths. This was a celebration that in, in Israel's history where they celebrated how God had set them free from slavery in Egypt. And so for a week, they would live in booths. They'd make booths of branches from trees, palm branches and and other things, and they would live in these booths to remember that God freed them from slavery and they had to live in tents and in booths while they were in the wilderness as they traveled to the promised land. And it was also a time when the harvest was brought in and they were celebrating and giving thanks for the harvest. And so people from all over the countryside would have come to Jerusalem to the site of the temple and there they would have seen that maybe not as much work as they thought had been done. 
that maybe it wasn't looking as good as they had hoped or imagined in their minds when Haggai first spoke. And so they got discouraged. Apparently, things hadn't gone as they planned. And Haggai 1.6 says, you have sown much, but you harvested little. You can imagine everyone there living in close proximity. It's supposed to be a time when you're celebrating God's house, you're celebrating his provision, but it's utterly disappointing. They're living in close proximity, so people begin to talk. Maybe you're overhearing what the husband is saying to the wife in the next hut over, how disappointing it is that things haven't gone as planned, how there doesn't appear to be enough supply, how things don't look as good as they used to look. And they began to talk, and word spread throughout the camp as they're living in these huts very quickly. The harvest isn't as good as this year. How are we going to obey God when we don't even have enough for ourselves? And maybe they, they even had some of the elders who remembered what the previous temple looked like and they were whispering in the camp, ah, this new building project, it doesn't look as, as good as the old one. It's not as big, it's not as ornate. And they started comparing its previous splendor to its current pitiable state. And they were discouraged, and they were discouraging the people around them. And that discouragement threatens the work that God has ordered. It threatens to repeat what actually happened to the people the first time around. Remember, 15 years earlier, a group of exiles had returned and they'd laid the foundations for the temple, but they grew discouraged and they stopped working. And part of that discouragement is described in Ezra 3, verses 10 to 12. They tell us this, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. They were wet blankets. They could only see that it wasn't as good as what they thought. They had no vision for the future, and so they were wet blankets on what God was doing. And the same thing was about to happen again this second time around 15 years later. Discouragement was setting in and being amplified by comparisons to the past. But then God stepped in, and he didn't fix everything for the people. Instead, he injected courage. He sent Haggai to encourage his discouraged people and to empower them to continue. God can empower us. God can empower you to defeat discouragement. He's done it on many occasions. He injects courage when we need it. He typically doesn't do it by removing the obstacles. That's what we would like. But he typically doesn't do it by removing the obstacles. He typically injects courage by giving reminders to his people of who he is, of his presence among them, and of his promises to them. And since we all face discouragement in our personal lives, in our ministries, in our church, since we all face discouragement, and since discouragement can derail and stop the work of God through the church, through your life, how important is it that we should learn to defeat discouragement? It's vital. 
It's so important that we would know, how do I deal with it when discouragement comes? God can empower you to defeat discouragement. And so I want to show you how he did that for his people in the book of Haggai and how you can apply these things to your life, hopefully, so that you can defeat discouragement as well. Now, I want to just say this. Discouragement isn't always something that you can just defeat mechanicalistically or whatever the word is. It's not just a formula, right? It's not just, hey, if you'll just do this step and this step, you'll feel better. I understand that. I don't want to take your discouragement lightly because sometimes discouragement is very real. Notice that when Haggai addressed the people, he said, who among you is left who remembers how this house looked in former days? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He wasn't saying that wasn't true. It was true. That was the reality of the situation. The temple did not look as good now as it did then. The place didn't look, even with all of their plans for for building it again, the new building plans did not look as good as the old ones. That was the reality. So Haggai didn't come and say, hey, forget it. It's going to be okay. He didn't say that. He didn't take discouragement lightly, and I don't want to do that either. It's not just a formula. Do these things, and you'll feel better. This isn't self-help. But God does want you to know that his presence is with you. And he does want you to rely on his presence. He does want you to learn to trust his promises. And trust is going to be so key if you're going to overcome discouragement. You'll have to have faith in what God says he will do. Because likely he will not come in and immediately remove the obstacle. But he does want to inject your life with courage and help you to trust him more and more. So the first The first way that that we should respond, the first manner in which we respond to help us defeat discouragement is that we can receive the the reassurance of his presence. Receive the reassurance of his presence. The people who remembered the glory of the previous temple weren't wrong. It was a magnificent temple, and it far surpassed anything they could hope for with this rebuilding. The new temple looked smaller. It looked less ornate. They weren't being scolded for recognizing reality, but they were being warned not to be discouraged, nor to discourage others, and not to measure the present and what God's going to do in the future by the past. Read verses 4 to 5. He says this, yet now, says, doesn't, it, doesn't the old one, if you remember, those who remember, wasn't it better? You remember it was, wasn't it? And yet he says, yet now, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst Fear not. God tells them, be strong, work, fear not. The NASB, uh, New American Standard Bible, translates be strong this way. I think it's fitting. He says, take courage. Was this some kind of halftime speech filled with hype but no substance? Guys, I, I, I know we're down. What we need to do is we need to go out there with more energy in the second half. We need to share the ball, but make sure you get the ball to Jones because he's our best player. And what we got to do, don't worry about the score, but score more points than the other team. And we're going to win. Let's do it. Sports on three. One, two, three. Sports, right? Is that what this is? Is it just a hype speech? No. No, it's not just a halftime speech. God is saying, I am with you. Work. Why? For work's sake? No, work 
for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. When we're discouraged, it's easy to assume that God is not with us, isn't it? In fact, that, that might be part of the definition of Christian discouragement. When a Christian is discouraged, almost universally they feel, I can't sense God, God doesn't seem to be working, God doesn't seem to be moving. We assume, I'm discouraged, therefore God is not with me. I mentioned several weeks ago when talking about false teachers that external success is not always an indication of God's favor. The opposite is true as well. Discouragement, and when things don't look good in our circumstances, that's not always an indication that God isn't with us or that he's not prepared to help us. God is with us. He told the remnant of people who were rebuilding this temple that he was still fulfilling the covenant or the promise that he made with them hundreds of years earlier when he brought them out of Egypt, that he would be with them and that they would be his people. And we have a similar but better promise through Jesus. Because remember Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us. Believer, God is with you. This is the blessing of Jesus. I'm not speaking something over, listen, if you're running from God, if you're willfully sinning and and you won't repent, I'm not speaking blessing over that in your life. I'm not saying, don't worry about it, God's with you. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you're a believer in Jesus, you repent of your sins, you're wanting to follow him, you're serving him, but you're discouraged, God is with you. I can say that with confidence because God sent Jesus into a world that was discouraged to a people who were discouraged and wondering where is God in all of this. God sent Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us into his people Israel to inject them with courage and he does the same for believers today. His spirit is in us and with us and among us. Notice that he says to his people in Haggai through the prophet that his spirit dwells among them. How much more is that true for us today? That we know that God has put his spirit in us because we've confessed faith in Jesus? We know that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and works in us? Listen, the scripture teaches us that the spirit of God seals us and makes us sons and daughters of God. Let me just say it again, believer. You're discouraged. God is with you. You may not feel it. You may not see it. But listen, this, as in all things, is a walk of faith for Christians. Sometimes you don't feel it. Believe the word of God and trust his promise. God is with us. God is with you. He's with you to comfort, he's with you to help, he's with you to guide, he's with you to strengthen, and even when you don't feel those things, he nevertheless is with you. And so don't add on top of your discouragement, which is so often tempting for believers, we often feel this way. Don't add on top of your discouragement, things don't seem to be going well at work, things don't seem to be going well at church, I don't see as much fruit in my ministry as I'd like, I don't see as much fruit out of my witness as I'd like, I, I, I can't seem to make things go well with my family, there are some discouraging things there, or maybe it's just a sense, a feeling that you have, that, that you, don't, you just don't feel bright in your soul. Don't add to those feelings the fear that God's not with you, that your feelings mean that God has somehow changed his mind. Listen, believer, God sent his son to die for you. Jesus hung on a cross for you. Do you think how you feel one day, two days, a week, a month, even years, 
Do you think that he withdraws his presence because of how you feel? No, believer. No. You're a child of God and God is with you. And church, we're the house of God. God is with us. I want to encourage you to be an encourager in the house of God. And sometimes we think that our small comments are no big deal. But if you imagine encouragement like a balloon and you blow that balloon up and it's full and you imagine your small comments of discouragement like a needle. You know what needles do to balloons, right? Even if you pinch off the end and just poke a hole and it drains out slowly, it still deflates the balloon, doesn't it? Listen, the, the scripture tells us over and over again, encourage one another. In fact, the Bible says this, that God has put his spirit in us and given us spiritual gifts specifically for this person, for this reason. Notice the language that the Apostle Paul uses if you read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. He says to edify or to build up the church. Not deflate the church, not to suck the air out of the church, not to cause people to feel like, oh, we can't do this, God can't use me, this is never going to work. God calls us and puts his spirit in us so that we might encourage each other. That's the explicit reason he says he gives gifts of the spirit. So believer, maybe you who are prone to to feeling down and discouraged, may I encourage you, don't spread it. Don't spread it to others. I'm not saying don't share it. Don't share that you're feeling discouraged. You should. You should share it with a believer in Jesus and allow them to build you up. But don't, 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 don't think that because you're discouraged it means that nothing's going to go well or that nothing's going to work out or that God's not with his people in his church. Do the opposite. Instead, be a part of his people and allow them to encourage you. Allow them to build you up. Let the Holy Spirit work through you to make you an encourager rather than a discourager. Let let your words and and your, your attitude and your demeanor be such that when people are around you, they leave with confidence. God is going to work. God is going to move He's going he's gonna to work through his people. His promises are still true, and his presence is still with us. And believer, I know that oftentimes when we are discouraged, we refrain from being in God's presence. We push back from church. We push back from prayer. We push back from reading God's word because we think, what if I do it and I'm just disappointed again? I think really that's just our fears and the lies of the enemy, if I can be quite honest with you. I think that he seeks to keep you away from the places, people, and activities, and the the good habits that are going to help you to overcome. I'm not saying that you go to church and read your Bible one week and and you're suddenly going to feel better. Please, again, I'm not taking depression or discouragement lightly. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this. So often, he convinces people who could be encouraged by the body of Christ to stay away from the body of Christ. Don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. Put yourself in a place where you can receive encouragement, where courage that maybe you lack because you're discouraged can be put into you, which is the definition of encouragement, because you need courage. You need courage to lead your life the way that God wants you to lead it. You need courage to fulfill his purpose in your life. You need courage to confront the problems in your family. You need courage to stand for the Lord in the midst of hardships. You need courage. So be in places and with people who will put Courage into you. Be in the Lord's house. Be in the Lord's house and seek his presence with people 
who are the people of his presence. Because that's going to put courage back into you to trust God can do it. He's done it before. He's done it in them. I see him working. And while I don't feel it yet, he can do it. I trust him. I trust his presence. We need to be people of God's presence. We need to receive the reassurance of God's presence. Go back to that story of David and Goliath with me, if you would. When David shows up, you remember David is totally dismayed because he sees how God's people have not reacted. Well, they have reacted. They've reacted in fear and in discouragement to the taunting of this giant, and he's befuddled by it. He can't believe that this is going on. And so in 1 Samuel 17, 26, he says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Now, he already knew what was gonna be done. He knew the reward. He was asking them, because he's wanting them to think about why are you so hesitant to do this? Now, listen to what he says next. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David seemed to be the only person in the place that recognized and realized We're God's people, and God hasn't left. He's with us. And so what does he do? He fights the giant himself. I love this other story. I think it's so, it can be so helpful for us in times of discouragement. David, later on in his life, Saul had been chasing him around, and he was leading a band of of kind of misfits and rebels, and they had gone off from their camp, and while they were away, Another, another tribe, uh, not Israel, but another tribe from outside Israel came and raided their camp, burned it to the ground, stole all their wives and kids, kidnapped them, and left. When they get back to camp, everything's burned, wives and kids are gone, everybody's mad. They're discouraged. The courage has been sucked out of them, and they're dismayed, and they're distressed, and it, even David was, but David knew what to do about it. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. They wanted to kill him. They thought he was the cause of this. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But look at what it says David did. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David remembered that bad circumstances don't mean God has left the building. David, remember that bad circumstances don't mean that God's not present, that he doesn't love us, that he won't help us. Bad circumstances and how I feel. Notice, David felt what? Distressed. And people wanted to kill him. I've gone through some bad leadership times, but I always felt like there was somebody in my corner. But David here, it looks like everybody's left him, and yet he knew what to do. He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Believer, we face discouraging times. It's inevitable. You're going to feel discouraged, but you need to be reassured of God's presence. He doesn't leave you just because you're discouraged. He doesn't walk off, run away, forget his promises, forget his faithfulness. He doesn't change because you're discouraged. Furthermore, he doesn't leave his church just because you're discouraged. He doesn't leave his people just because you're discouraged. So what ought you to do? Should you be a little needle poking holes in a balloon that's filled with courage? Or should you say, God, I'm discouraged, so I'm going to get myself to the place where there are people who are encouragers. I'm going to get myself among people who are going to build me up. I'm going to get myself into your word and strengthen myself in the Lord. I'm going to get myself where I know I should be. Yes, it's hard. It's sometimes difficult because we feel like, God, what if you disappoint me? But we can't allow our fears to dictate what we believe about God. We have to allow God to tell us who he is. And he says that when we will do that, he'll meet us. He'll be there. He'll encourage our hearts. He'll strengthen our lives. Get your to the places where God's presence will be reassured in your heart 
and in your life. The second thing that takes place among the people as Haggai speaks to them is that he refocuses their attention on God's vision or his provision. Sometimes all we can see is discouragement. Things don't seem to be going right. We have more need than we have provision. Our prayers aren't being answered. In times like these, it's important that we not only hold on to God's presence, but we hold on to God's promises. We have to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. And this is where so many people give up. They thought that Christianity was supposed to be easy, it was supposed to make their lives easier, that Jesus was just a means of getting what they wanted, supposed to prevent hardships, and then when difficulty and discouragement comes, they turn away from Jesus because they thought he was like just protection against hardship. And when it becomes difficult to believe or to do the work of the Lord, faith shrivels up. These are the times when we need to refocus our, our, our eyes on God's vision and on his provision in our lives. Sometimes I walk around our building I see tattered carpet, stained ceiling tiles, broken doorknobs, and all the other things that could be fixed. Sometimes it's a bit discouraging. It can be easy, it can be easy to, to uh, you know, begin to, to feel like, man, there's, there's so much to do. How are we going to do it all? It's easy to look at what could be better, what used to be better, and forget what God has done and what he's doing. Forget his promises. It's easy to forget that the carpet's tattered by feet who have walked in to experience the presence of God, isn't it? It's easy to forget that the doorknobs have been broken by kids who have been entering a Sunday school class to learn God's grace in their lives. It's easy to forget that, that, that carpets have been stained because we have youth groups who have uh, passion and vigor and they want to do some fun things before they listen to the word of God. It's easy to forget that, isn't it? And it's easy to forget that God is still with us and that he's still present in our midst. It's easy to forget that God has a plan Maybe rather than thinking, there's no way we can keep up with all of this, my first thought should be God has a plan. We should walk by faith and not by sight. Read Haggai 2, 6-9 with me. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What did God mean when he said he would shake the whole earth again? What does he mean by that? I think Psalm 114 can help us here with this imagery. I'm gonna read it from the New Living Translation. And it says this, when the Israelites escaped from Egypt, when the family of Jacob left that foreign land, the land of Judah became God's sanctuary and Israel became his kingdom. The Red Sea saw them coming and it hurried out of their way. The water of the Jordan River turned away. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What's wrong, Red Sea, that made you hurry out of their way? What happened, Jordan River, that you turned away? Why mountains did you skip like rams? Why hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. He turned the rock into a pool of water. Yes, a spring of water flowed from solid rock. The salvation of God's people, from, uh, God's people Israel from slavery in Egypt was a cataclysmic event. Not only did nature obey God, but nations shifted. Egypt was overthrown. And uh, the, the nations in the land of Canaan, where God was sending his people, evil nations, were displaced and overthrown as they entered. And as the remnant of God's people, who had come back from exile, stood looking at the rubble of their temple, the slow progress, and their lack of resources... 
And they thought, well, we can't do this. God reminded them of what he had done before. He shook the earth, both literally and metaphorically, to accomplish his purposes. And he said he was going to do it again. Nations would come to Israel and bring their treasure to furnish God's house. Now, this brings up the question, did it happen? Did God fulfill this promise? And when we ask that question, I think we can agree. There's a Bible scholar, Peter Verhoff. He's correct when he suggests that the promise was fulfilled and it's still being fulfilled. It's happening in stages. Because take a look at this. The temple was completed after four years and some treasure was restored by the emperor Artaxerxes. You can read about that in Ezra 7.15. The temple was expanded and adorned to an unimaginable degree by Herod in the time of Jesus in Mark 13.1. Jesus himself entered the temple. An application to Christ and the church is probably implied here since Christ is the fullness of God through whom God reconciled himself, reconciled to to himself all things. Notice the promise in Haggai, in this place there will be peace, and God says that he reconciled in Jesus all things to himself and made peace by the blood of his cross. And God is making his people the temple, a place for his dwelling. The promise will be fulfilled when Christ returns and we receive a kingdom that according to Hebrews 12, 26 to 28, quoting, Haggai will not be shaken. And the nations will bring their glory to the city of God and the Lamb, Revelation 21, 24 to 26. In other words, yes, the promise has been fulfilled, and yes, the promise is being fulfilled. God has shaken the nations, and even at the time of Christ, the temple was more magnificent than the people in Haggai's day could ever have imagined. And God is still shaking nations through his son Jesus. People from every tribe and tongue are being gathered into God's temple. The wealth of the nations, both in terms of people and the resources of God's people, are being brought to God's house to worship him and to honor him. The latter glory of the house is greater than the former glory, and it is only increasing. And for us, at a very, very local scale, this means that in our lives and in our church, we should not be discouraged, but we should learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We need to refocus on God's vision and his provision so that we can continue the work he's called us to do. Don't be discouraged in your life. God will supply what you need according to his riches. Don't be discouraged in this church. God will supply what we need according to his riches. In verse number eight, notice it says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. My question is this. If he owns the silver and the gold, and he wants us to work, why doesn't he just give us the silver and gold up front? It'd be easier, wouldn't it? Let me suggest to you that the reason he doesn't give us the silver and the gold, the reason he doesn't always provide up front is because he wants us to learn to trust him. This is indeed a walk of faith, is it not? We don't like it, but this is, all, this is how he almost always works. It's how it almost always happens in your walk with God. He doesn't ask you to do things that you're completely prepared for and that you already have the strength to do in your own provision. Maybe he doesn't give us the provision up front so that we don't skip seeking his presence. Did you hear that? There were two reassurances. The first reassurance was his presence. The second is his vision and provision. Maybe he doesn't give us the provision up front so that we don't skip the first part seeking his presence and being in his presence. We have to be a church that seeks God's presence and then entrust his provision enough to obey. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come as we get ready to respond this morning. Christianity 
is not a religion in which you believe something and then you go about your life hoping that God blesses you and that you'll go to heaven when you die. That's not what Christianity is. To be a Christian is to engage in the work of God's kingdom. It's to put his house first, to put his work first. You may not always know what to do. You may sometimes get frustrated and discouraged. It may sometimes appear like what you can do doesn't compare to the efforts of the past or it doesn't compare to the efforts of other people. Maybe you look at great Christians of the past and you think, I'll never be as strong as they are. I'll never be as spiritual, as fruitful as they were. Maybe you remember back to a revival in a previous generation and you think, we don't see anything like that happening right now. Perhaps you look back on a previous time of prosperity in this church and you think it's not as great as it used to be. But that's not our concern. The riches belong to God. He'll supply them. It is our job to take heart and notice work, to engage, to participate, to invest in the kingdom of God with what he has given us and to trust that he'll make up for our lack. Are you discouraged by what you see in front of you in your life? Open your spiritual eyes. I'm not saying that God makes everything better immediately, but God does have a vision for your future and he has provision for what you need. Can you see that? Maybe you can't see it with your physical eyes, but can you see it with eyes of faith saying, I trust the Lord. Can you trust the Lord to supply your needs? Can you trust the Lord to supply the needs of this church as we work for his kingdom? Will you keep going, persevering in the work of the Lord in your life and in your family and with your church because we are not obligated to have all of the answers, but we are supposed to trust that God has all of the answers and walk in obedience to him. If you're discouraged, if you've stopped the work of God in your life through the gifts that God has given you, if you've stopped moving forward in your family and in leadership, in ministry, because you've grown discouraged, God wants to empower you to defeat that discouragement. God's design for you is not that you'd go throughout life at all times dejected, defeated, without hope, with eyes cast down on the problems. Listen, I am not at all saying you've got to be happy-go-lucky all the time or there won't be moments of discouragement. There will be. It happens to everyone. But what I'm saying is that God's design and desire for you is not that you would walk throughout your life with eyes cast down constantly. He doesn't guarantee comfort or ease. That's not what I'm saying because he doesn't want us to rely on ourselves. He's with us and his vision for the future and his ability to provide for us is greater than we can imagine. He has already shown that through the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Can you trust him with the rest of your life? Can you trust him to provide? Can you trust him for vision? Today I want to take just a moment and we're going to do this very quickly. If you just bow your heads, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, maybe your life is filled with discouragement and doubt and despair. God wants to come in and he wants to redeem that. He wants to set you free. And he's already provided the means for that through his son Jesus. God sent Jesus to die for your sin. And he bore your sin, your rebellion against God, the things that you've done wrong. Not just actions, but your attitude toward God how you've been moving away from God. He bore all of that when he died on the cross for you and God on the third day raised him from the dead to demonstrate his power and to convince you 
that he wants to raise you to new life as well if you'll trust Jesus. And so trusting Jesus means that you confess I've sinned. You confess that you need him to save you. You cannot save yourself. And you ask him to forgive you. And then you entrust your life to him. You don't just say, God, I, I want, I want a cleansing from the past and a ticket to heaven in the future. But you say, God, I give you my life. I've not been living it the way I should. I want to be in relationship with you. Will you please forgive me? And I surrender to you. If you've not done that, I want to give you the opportunity to do it today. And so would you very quickly, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus like that, you've never surrendered your life to him, would you just lift up your hand? If you want to do that today, you want to confess in him, repent and believe. I'm going to wait for just a moment because we want to move forward here quickly. But is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. All right, I didn't see any hands. If I missed your hand, please come see me after service. I would love to talk with you about that. But I want to move on right now to talk to believers for a moment. We're going to take communion as a response to this. Jesus, his death and his resurrection, his body and blood shed for us, is an assurance to us of God's presence, is it not? He assures us that God loves us. That the scripture says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want to ask you very simply this morning, are you discouraged? Are you brokenhearted over something? Are you dejected? Are your eyes downcast? Have you forgotten that God's presence is with you? Have you forgotten that he will provide and he will give vision for the future? Has your vision been swallowed up by just the problems of the present and you haven't been able to see what he's doing in the future? Do you need him today to inject some courage into your heart? Do you need to be blessed by other believers who are worshiping the Lord alongside you and encouraged in your spirit? Do you need him to give you vision beyond what you see as the problems in front of you? I'm going to ask you to respond in this way very simply that you would just take your communion with you and you join me up front if you just come quickly if you're discouraged this is not the walk of shame listen everybody's discouraged in some way at some time everybody faces moments where they say I don't know that I can do this and I can't seem to kick myself out of this I can't seem to get myself going I can't and you just need God's presence to minister to you this morning. I'm going to ask you to very quickly, you just come forward because we're going to take a moment. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to praise him. And then we're going to take communion together just as a reassurance of his presence and his love for us. So that's you. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Just come find a place. It's just a move. It's just a move you're making to say, God, I don't want to just sit back today. I want to say, yes, I've heard and I respond to your word. I want to have your presence reassure me. I need to be encouraged by you and by the body this morning. If that's you, make your way forward. Worship team, go ahead and begin to lead us and let's worship the Lord together.